The so-called diagnosis of excited delirium, a term often used to justify and defend police brutality disproportionately against Black people, has circulated in the medical canon for more than 25 years. It is time, past time actually, for organized medicine to denounce its diagnostic validity as its use as a shield to justify excessive police force. It reemerged most recently on May 25, 2020, when Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd, an unarmed Black man, by kneeling on his neck for more than nine minutes. During that time, fellow officer Thomas Lane was heard to say, quote, I am worried about excited delirium or whatever, end quote. Delirium is a well-defined clinical entity described in the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders as an acute change in attention, awareness, and cognition caused by an underlying medical condition, substance, or exposure to a toxin or withdrawal from one. It is not, however, associated with sudden death. Excited delirium, however, is not listed in the manual. That was Ayanna Jordan and Jennifer Brody reading from their recent first opinion titled Excited Delirium, Valid Clinical Diagnosis or Medicalized Racism? Organized medicine needs to take a stand. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. In the wake of the greatest public health crisis in recent memory, the role of the pharma and biopharma industry in the lives of global populations has taken on growing importance as it helps fight the COVID-19 pandemic. Cytiva's Global Biopharma Resilience Index takes a holistic look at the industry across five key pillars at a time when its health is vital. Dive into the highlights and key findings at cytiva.com resilience. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot backslash resilience. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. Welcome to the podcast, Diana and Jennifer. We are so happy to be here, Pat. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Before we get going, I want to let listeners know that both of you wear several hats. Jennifer is, among other things, a primary care physician specializing in HIV and addiction medicine and the director of HIV services at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, as well as an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Ayana is an addiction psychiatry physician at Connecticut Mental Health Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine. It sounds like both of you have enough to do to keep busy and out of trouble. And yet, here you are, challenging the existence of a quasi-medical diagnosis that will likely be used in the high-profile trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer charged with killing George Floyd in May of 2020, and trying to get the medical community to reject it. When, Ayana, when you finished medical school, did you see yourself as a medical activist? You know what, Pat? Listen, I did not. <laughs> However, in the spirit of being a Black woman in this country, uh, it is something that unfortunately is inevitable and unavoidable. 
And um, when I see how medicine particularly is being weaponized to hurt uh, people, uh, it's really, really important for me to take a stand and join with colleagues such as Jen and Sarah to be very clear about what is going on and make sure that the public understands the severity of how medicine can affect the lives of others. Jennifer, how about you? Were you already a medical activist when you were finishing medical school? No, I wouldn't describe myself as that when I finished medical school, even though um, I had a lot of um, sort of righteous indignation about the things that I was seeing. Um, I trained in Los Angeles at the UCLA Drew program, which no longer exists, and saw sort of the forces of structural oppression impacting the lives of my patients and causing illness so clearly. But I saw my interventions as very um, individually oriented, like patient by patient. Um, and I think over the last decade of continuing to work with um, folks sort of living at the intersections of multiple forms of oppression, um, I found myself in a position where I could no longer stay silent or, or simply just do my work as a physician, patient to patient, that I needed to make my voice heard and, and make these forces uh, more visible and also to bring light to the ways in which medicine is really misused um, um, in these um, intersections of structural oppression, including structural racism. So I, I see myself more as that now, <laughs> but not when I finished med school. So what made you two and your first opinion co-author, Sarah Wakeman, an addiction medicine specialist at Mass General Hospital, take up this particular issue? Well, you know, the, this particular issue is one that I only really, you know, the, the, the concept of excited delirium was nothing that I learned about in medical school. It was nothing that I learned about, you know, in my decade as a primary care physician or even when I went and pursued a specialization in addiction medicine. I had never heard of this term. I first really heard of this term and its uses um, really, um, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's death, killing, um, and the Elijah McLean case, where I really was hearing this term, and then um, sort of neat, found, you know, really wanted to dig deeper and to understand how is this medicalized term being used to really cause harm. And so I reached out to Sarah um, as a really a leader in addiction medicine and Ayana um, to sort of dive deeper and better understand this and bring light to this issue. Diana, you're shaking your head here. Yeah, no, I it's true. And I think it's it's actually kind of tragic because I I trained at a institution that is very much well known for um social justice and racial racial justice, uh Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University. And so looking back, um it, I I I had no idea. I had no idea that these terms were even being used. And similar to um, Jen's experience, really, it came to the forefront with Elijah McLean and Manuel Elise. And I said, this is absurd. And really knowing what it is to treat patients with delirium, which is actually a real diagnosis that is um, validated, um, and seeing how that has been co-opted uh, for for over 30 years now, um, it was really disturbing. And I said, well, how, I wonder if other colleagues know about this. And then having the discussions, realized how little, really the lack of knowledge amongst colleagues and respected physicians 
um, not even understanding that this was being used uh, amongst medical organizations, but also uh, within police, having it, the term excited delirium being um, incorporated in trainings amongst the FBI. And so I was really thrilled when Jen reached out because I said, absolutely, we need to bring attention to um, this so-called syndrome and then also be more deliberate in stating, what do we do now? Since we know it is indeed not a medically valid diagnosis, once we raise awareness, where do we go from here? And I think that's um, what we're trying to grapple with now, for sure. So let's take a step backwards for a second. Can can one of you describe delirium? And Ayana, you were starting down that road. Can one of you describe delirium and maybe the other describe excited delirium? And then we'll explore the differences between the two. Yeah, Jen, if it's okay, I'll just start off with delirium. Um, so as stated earlier, delirium is indeed a um, medical condition, and it's classified as an acute change in attention, awareness, and cognition that's caused by an underlying medical um, illness. And this uh, is indeed a disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders from the American Psychiatric Association, of which I'm a member in the Board of Trustees. What's important to note from delirium is that it's not associated with sudden death. So when people become delirious, oftentimes from, say, a urinary tract infection, they can have wax and waning in their attention. Sometimes they can act aggressively um, because of this disturbance, right, caused by the infection. But again, when we're dealing with delirium, you treat the underlying cause, and the example that I gave would be the UTI, and then people um, quickly actually <laughs> constitute back to their original state. Uh, I think the difference, and I'll let um, Jen talk about excited delirium again, is that there is not death associated with delirium, the medical condition. Very different. Have you seen patients with delirium? Absolutely, Pat. I am an addiction doc. So <laughs> this is what I see quite often. Um, and like I, like I said, it in many different entities, more commonly for me, I see a del uh, delirium resulting from withdrawal from a particular substance, most oftentimes um, alcohol withdrawal um, and benzodiazepine withdrawal. But it's it's not uncommon, especially because of the patients that I take care of. And Jen, over to you. Can you describe excited delirium? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things with this uh, so-called syndrome is there's no um, universal definition. Um, you know, as, as we've been saying, it's not in the Di Diagnostic Statistical Manual, nor is it in the International Classification of Diseases or any other um, sort of uh, list of diagnoses. You can't bill for this condition. Um, that said, um, you know, the proponents of the syndrome um, have uh, described features that are um, very commonly present. And so those features are things such as elevated pain tolerance, rapid breathing, sweating, agitation, elevated body temperature, lack of tiring, unusual strength. Um, people note, or uh, proponents of the syndrome note, inappropriate clothing for the temperature. 
Um, interestingly, there's a, a piece embedded, um, the feature of police noncompliance. So you can see already in the sort of description of the, the so-called syndrome is already a presumed encounter with, with, the, with law enforcement. One other feature is, is that proponents do say that it is associated with sudden death, um, but through unclear mechanisms. Um, and so, um, you know, there's uh, uh, attempts, you know, by proponents to sort of describe certain possible biological pathways to sudden death, but none of which have been proven or are well-founded in the scientific literature. So diagnoses like this, or they don't come out of the blue. How did this one emerge? Yeah, so this is a term really um, first used in its present day form. Um, in 1985 um, by a forensic pathologist named, named Charles Wetley, and he was based in Florida. And he used um, a, a case series. Um, so there were seven cases of sudden death and individuals, all of whom were found to have cocaine in their systems on autopsy. All seven of these individuals were restrained um, by police officers and died of fatal respiratory collapse within minutes to one hour following the restraint. And five of them, in fact, died in police custody. So that's really where we see its first sort of present day usage. Interesting. I was doing a little background for this, and I, I learned that he was the pathologist, he was the coroner who was responsible for identifying all 300 people who died in TWA 800, which crashed just after it blew up and crashed just after it took off of Kennedy International in July 1996. Um, so an interesting dual career. <clears throat> So he came up with this idea. He and a colleague came up with this idea in 1985. Where did it go from there? So, so shortly thereafter, um, there was another. Um, uh, he sort of became um, uh, visible in the in the media um, following uh, another series of deaths. This time, it was a spate of um, deaths among Black women who were um, thought to be involved in in, um, in sex work, um, who were found dead in Miami with the presence of small amounts of cocaine in their systems. There was no other cause of death found, um, and so Wetley then attributed these deaths to excited delirium. Now, a short short time after that, uh, a young black teenage girl was found dead in a similar fashion, but without any cocaine in her system, um, which then triggered Wetley's superior to review all of the previous cases in which excited delirium was used in this, um, you know, the spate of, of deaths. And actually, there was um, found evidence of um, asphyxia in those cases. Um, and those deaths were then reclassified as homicides. And it, a serial killer was, in fact, um, found and thought to be um, responsible for, for those deaths. And so we can see the ways in which it was, you know, misapplied in, in these cases. And when the, the bodies were then, you know, exhumed and reexamined, there was evidence of asphyxia, which sort of cast this, this shadow, this, this sort of doubt about, you know, how is this diagnosis actually being made and how may it be, um, be uh, misapplied? And uh, Ayana, you all said that, you, you all wrote that the evidence for this thing is weak. Now, it's probably worse than weak. It's, it really is. And again, even um, when the ACEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, did a real deep dive into trying to understand what evidence is there to support um, this diagnosis, they really came up with um, nothing. So there was no answer. They, they, they said, we don't have enough to go either way. So unfortunately, 
um, despite not having any any evidence to really support this diagnosis, it is still being used as recently as what we're seeing um, during the trial to support as a plausible explanation of why um, someone could die, really distracting, I believe, from what's really happening here, which is um, uh, oppression and really murder. <laughs> and and it's not happenstance um, that what we're seeing um, more recently in the last 10 years is that excited delirium is actually being used as a justification for people who are dead specifically in police custody. And I, I do think it's important to state that what we're seeing now, it is disproportionately affecting deaths involving Black men. And really, in a long line of, of historical justification of medicine being co-opted to as a way to... Um, excuse what I would call personally mediated racism. Have police officers or or the defense attorneys for police officers used this to get them get them off? Yeah, I think one of the things that's important to know um, is that because there hasn't been a national kind of push to gather all of the data to really understand in what cases has excited delirium been evoked as a way to defend police officers. But I will tell you that there was a study done where they looked at um, unexplained death in police custody, and they showed that from 1994 to 2004 in Maryland alone, 11% of those sudden deaths were attributed to excited delirium. So it would be, it would be important to see of those 11%, where those deaths were attributed to excited delirium, how many of those officers were actually um, com- not convicted um, because of this diagnosis. And I think that's, it's such a great question because as we're bringing attention to this issue, I think one of the things that I would love to see is the data to say, can you release who has been, um, uh, you know, not convicted as a result of um, using excited del- delirium as a, as a diagnosis? I don't have that data. As as we noted, you know, the first, the initial case series, the, you know, six of the seven individuals who were described were white. However, as soon as the diagnosis was in the ether, the so-called diagnosis was in the ether, right, it so quickly becomes utilized for racist purposes, which is there's a through line in history, right, about how we use some bit, tiny bit of scientific, quote unquote, data, however spuriously obtained or conceived, to then use it in a social context in which it causes further harm and is used to oppress um, with impunity. Um, so the, the follow-up study in 1997, that was of, of which Wetley was one of the co-authors, which looked at essentially every cocaine-related death in Miami-Dade, Florida, for like a 30-year period. Um, and they essentially found that when you, um, you, know, you looked at risk factors for death from the so-called di- um, diagnosis, black uh, men in particular were three and a half times more likely to have this listed on their death certificate. 
Um, and then I, you know, the other thing I, you know, to say is that when we're looking at a diagnosis that's as slippery as this one and so prone to abuse, right? What was the context? What was the social and historical context in which it emerged? Let's think about the mid 1980s. We have um, the war on drugs um, really ramping up. It was targeted towards communities of color. We saw the militar militarization of police. Um, while we in parallel saw the defunding of, of uh, the public safety net um, and and the you know the, the with the militariz militarization of police forces um, they're targeting the you know communities of color we see this diagnosis emerge we know that the black people are more likely to find themselves in confrontation with police because police are in their communities they're more likely to be um, in uh, uh, restraint and police restraint um, and and they are therefore more likely to to, to die from this um, and so this diagnosis conveniently whether intentionally or not. And so that's sort of irrelevant. It's used then as, as, a, as a defense, as a smokescreen, really, to say, oh, well, you know, it couldn't possibly be, um, you know, the police, uh, uh, um, you know, the inappropriate and excessive police force and brutality that's the cause of death. And then you see uh, a whole host of, you know, pseudoscientific papers demonstrating that, you know, uh, res police restraint holes are not dangerous. You know, you see, and they're being debunked in the Floyd trial now. They've done all these simulations where they use dummies and have someone kneel on the neck and how much weight does that actually transfer? Um, they do studies with young, healthy volunteers who know they're not going to be killed, who, you know, who, who aren't in terror of the police, um, who are placed in positions, you know, in prone position, sometimes even in hog ties with weight on their back. And then they conclude, you know, with up to 210 pounds on their back, that doesn't, you know, Im impact the mechanics of breathing, which is absurd. These are not real world conditions. It doesn't at all account for the ways in which, a, you know, a, a person would respond um, a black person would respond to being placed in a restraint like that as, as knowing the history of the police in your community, seeing it every day and being in literal fear of your life, that you're fighting for your life. These are not real world conditions, but that data is used, you know, to prop up this idea that these restraint holds, including the, the you know, the prone maximal restraint hold or the hogtie hold is not um, a, a hold that can cause death. And we're seeing this again, you know, playing out in the Floyd trial. I just think that's so brilliant, Jen. And I, I think what is really disheartening um, as a physician practicing is, you know, we really pledge to do no harm. And we see that the way in which the medical organization is um, not using its power and privilege to just openly denounce the, the pseudoscience. Um, and I just want to say, like, you know, the APA and the AMA and the WHO have not endorsed excited delirium, which is great, but like we need to take it one step further and say, you know, actively denounce it, right? Because we cannot be um, participants. We, the medical institution, cannot be participants in the oppression of others. And this is consistent in what we're seeing um, just in American history, how people who are othered, who are not a part of the predominant narrative, which is non-white folks, have been vilified and seem to be dangerous or uh, super scary and not being used as uh, a justification for death. And in that same tradition, we're seeing the, the um, I would say, the modern uh you know, day use of that fear, which is excited delirium being used as a justification uh, to kill people who are different 
who are deemed scary. Let it be known, Pat, let me tell you, if this diagnosis was being disproportionately used to justify the killings of white men in this country, there would be outrage. It just would not happen. God forbid if this would have been used as a diagnosis for white women, which I think is the crown jewel of this country. Absolutely not. And so we have to be deliberate and um, unapologetic and I think very clear in understanding the racist underpinnings of this diagnosis or the so-called diagnosis. So in 12 years since the American College of Emergency Physicians came out with its report sort of justifying the use of this, there's been no science supporting it and yet silence. Um, what? So um, you two, I have a feeling, aren't the kind of people to raise an issue and then say, okay, now it's time for other people to solve it. You both look like you're going to raise an issue and then go after it. What what are you doing? What are you doing to move the ball forward with this um, spurious concept of excited racism? Uh, sorry, excited delirium. That would that would be a new one. Let's see. Figure out that was that was a <laughs> that, I, I like that was a good yeah, slip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know. I think that the the first thing that needs to happen. Um, is the American College of Emergency Physicians needs to take a critic, you know, needs to critically re-examine this issue. It has been over a decade since they published this white paper, which was based on low quality evidence, which they admit. Um, and it they now seem to understand, at least rhetorically, there's a commitment to racial justice. They, you know, if you go to their website right now, you can see these, you know, these commitments, these new commitments to racial justice. And, and if, if that is going to be um, a commitment that people are going to, to really fully step into, they need to go back to papers like this and reevaluate this issue with a racial justice framework. Now, I think that the ACEP you know, um, you know, their intent in looking at this issue um, to give them the benefit of the doubt was to say, how do we reduce harm? You know, how do we, you know, make sure that when people are agitated in the community and delirious, that law enforcement officers aren't just shooting at will, like that this is, or just throwing them in the back of a, a, a cop car and letting them, you know, the medical process or the psychiatric process take course and actually um, have them become sicker and sicker in the back of a cop car in a jail cell. So to give them the benefit, I think that, that you know, that was the stated intent. How do we reduce harm? How do we train people to reduce harm? How do we get people to medical care quickly or psychiatric care quickly? Now, the problem is, without a racial equity impact assessment of the impact of that statement on black people, they couldn't foresee the ways in which this diagnosis could then be used as a shield. Had they undergone that process, okay, let's think about this. Let's look about the context in which we're operating and how law enforcement, just the epidemiologic data. We know that you, mean, you could look at the data is overwhelming, that black people are more likely to be exposed to police presence, restraint, and, and, and encounters. How might this diagnosis be misapplied? And we need to foresee that and address it. Now, that's what they need to do, I think. Um, and there's lots of frameworks for doing that, for using this racial equity impact assessment to, to frame policy, to think about medical interventions, et cetera. I also think that the AMA and, and you know, the American Psychiatric Association, silence isn't enough. To not endorse yeah. is not the same as to denounce. 
Their silence on this issue makes every one of us in the medical profession complicit. And for me, I, you know, the reason why I'm speaking out about this is because it's causing harm to my patients. It's causing harm to the communities that I live in, the people that I love. You know, this um, is, is not something that I can la- allow to continue to happen in my name um, through silence. And, and, you know, so that's why we're, you know, really speaking out and um, are hoping to continue to put, apply pressure on these on these very powerful medical organizations who've made these racial justice commitments to really um, live up to those commitments by looking at this specific issue. You've already started a petition to the AMA. Do I get that right? To all three, the American Medical Association, um, the ACEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and APA, the American Psychiatric Association, and really want people to go to change.org. You can simply put in the search bar, excited delirium, our petition comes up and really just want to publicly acknowledge and thank Jen for pushing that and making sure that we get it out because we need people to to sign on <laughs> so that we can go with a, a critical mass of, of healthcare professionals and concerned citizens and saying that this is not okay. Um, one of the things that I, I think is so important that Jen brought up, and I, it didn't occur to me until now, but it is related. And so I'm so grateful um, for her bringing it up is the original intent of members of the ACEP who worked on that white paper, that statement related to excited delirium. And I I always say intent doesn't equal impact, right? Um, And so when you know better, you do better. But I think this is a prime example. And I'd be willing to say without even under knowing the racial makeup of people who were involved in that. But when medicine is overwhelmingly white, and even in medical subspecialties that have more diversity. Leadership is overwhelmingly white. And so you cannot foresee the ramifications or the impact of the scholarship in which we do. So I think, again, another important part about this, and we saw this very publicly in terms of what happened with JAMA saying that, you know, racism is not a thing, is that when you have well-intended white folks, quite honestly, who are trying to do good work, they sometimes cannot anticipate if they don't have the necessary education and the tools, the impact that um, the research will have on on different parts of, uh, of the community. So not only do we need to have these organizations actively denounce excited delirium, but there is a call for non-white medical leadership. You cannot have board of trustees and you know editorial boards who are major uh, make up the majority who are white it just can't happen we're seeing some of the unintended consequences of that there is a critical issue and we don't raise it directly in our piece but it's raised by others and it's an important that has not been raised and this is the issue of conflict of interest a number yeah. of medical yeah. professionals that have participated in white paper writing um, who are proponents who've written books on this you know so-called syndrome um, have received um, monetary support um, for expert testimony in cases of wrongful death involving tasers. Um, they have um, uh, 
uh, taser companies have bought copies, 1,500 copies of a book called Excited Delirium, and sent it to friends, you know, um, to medical examiners for use. And so we we really have to confront. It's 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 challenging, um, but we really need to confront this issue of conflicts of interest um, because they are all over this particular issue um, in very problematic ways. So I just I did want to mention that. That's no, not raised in, our, in, in the piece. Well, this has been a really eye-opening conversation. Thanks, thanks to you both for talking with me today about Excited Delirium. I hope the work you're doing on it moves the bar, uh, changes the hurdles, and, and you know opens people's eyes to this. Thanks for all the important work you're doing with people with addictions. Awesome. It was lovely to be here. I'm so grateful, Pat, for you expertly navigating this conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. And thanks, Ayana and Sarah, who's not here, for partnering with me on this um, important effort. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Our senior producer is Alyssa Ambrose, and our executive producer is Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com, and please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.